The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Will Appleton with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for December 3rd, 2022. Earlier this week, Sophia Yan joined Benjamin Wittes for a discussion on the recent protests occurring across China in response to the zero-COVID policy and accompanying lockdowns. To provide some context to the situation, I chose an episode from April 2020. In the episode, Benjamin Wittes sat down with Sophia Yan, who, at the time, was in a coronavirus lockdown after traveling to Wuhan. They spoke about what quarantine was like in China in April of 2020 and what the level of surveillance was, how the Chinese government was responding to the crisis and what impacts the crisis had on the Chinese economy. I'm Benjamin Wittes and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 28th, 2020. Sophia Yan is a correspondent in Beijing for the London Telegraph. She is also the pianist for the Lawfare podcast, and you're listening to her play the piano right now. She joined me from Beijing, where she is in coronavirus lockdown, and in China that means something a little different than it means here after visiting the city of Wuhan to see how it was recovering from being the coronavirus epidemic center earlier in the year. We talked about what Wuhan looks like these days. We talked about what quarantine means in China and how close the surveillance is. We talked about the Chinese government and how it is responding to the crisis. And we talked about the Chinese economy and how it is recovering and suffering. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 28th. Sophia Yan reports from quarantine in Beijing. Sophia, start by telling us where you are and why. Well, I've just come back to Beijing. I'm under quarantine in my house. Um, And it's because I recently traveled to and from Wuhan, which is the ground zero of the coronavirus outbreak. Um, You'll remember that's where the first cases emerged late last year. And because China is still grappling with this pandemic, there are a lot of measures now, including these quarantine restrictions that are still here in place um, to make sure that a second wave is prevented, or at least 
that they can um, track cases that are coming back. So a lot of people in the United States who are under lockdown hear you say, I'm under quarantine in Beijing, and they think, well, I'm under quarantine in Washington, or I'm under quarantine in in New York. But when you say quarantine, you mean something a little bit different from what we mean here when we say it. So what does quarantine in Beijing involve? Well, I'm pretty fortunate, I think, to be able to quarantine in my house. A lot of people who live with um, others, if you've got family or housemates, then you have to quarantine at a government facility. Those are usually hotels. So for me, I, ca- I literally cannot leave my house. I can't go out to take out the trash. I can't go out to get packages. They're brought to my door by a neighborhood committee, and a neighborhood party committee that oversees my particular residential complex. And there's even an alarm at my door. So every time I open my door, it pings this woman who's in charge of my building, just my building and my compound. So she knows exactly when that door opens and when it closes. And I know because on my first night, I opened the door to put out my trash. So once a day, they come by to take my rubbish and take my recycling. And so I was putting it out the night before. And the moment I did it, I closed the door. And a few seconds later, this woman who's in charge of my building messages me. She said, did you open your door? (laughs) And I said, well, yes, (laughs) I had to put out the trash. So since then, every time I do need to open my door, for the trash or to get grocery delivery or things like that. I always message her just to be like, FYI, I'm opening my door because they take it very seriously. You know, it makes sense. There's this concern that a second wave of infections, which have started to come, might mean that the disease spreads even more widely um, this time around. So China's being very, very careful. You are in your apartment. You said most people are quarantined at government facilities what does the government facility quarantine involve? Like if you were, if you had family members living with you and you were required to go to one of these hotels, how is that different from home quarantine other than that you don't have your piano? (laughs) Well, the restrictions are largely the same. They also can't leave. And so most of these facilities are uh, hotels that have been repurposed for that use. And so these people who are in that situation, some of my colleagues and friends have gone through that kind of quarantine, um, they also can't leave their hotel rooms. And so for all of us, no matter where you are at home or in one of these hotels used as a quarantine facility, a few times a day, you have to report your temperature and there's a certain people assigned to your case. So doctors and a kind of like a representative who's taking care of you and just making sure that you do do that full 14 days. So that, that person for me is this woman I mentioned before who knows every time I open my door And so I'm nearing the end of this 14-day period, and I have to undergo a second nucleic acid test to determine whether or not I have the virus. The first one I did back in Wuhan, and that was a a requirement for me to leave the city. So I was there uh, right before the lockdowns officially lifted and through that period after the lockdown started to be eased in early April. And even after the lockdowns came out in Wuhan, there was a restriction over how many people could come back to Beijing. So it was a thousand people a day and there was a lottery system to get a train ticket to return. And so to even get in the lottery system, you had to show a clean bill of health and go through a virus test. So I had to go to a hospital to show that I wasn't positive. Um, And with those results, then I could apply for this train ticket lottery. And with that, I could finally come back to Beijing. And from there, I was just escorted to different points to take personal details, register my temperature and all of this. I was escorted all the way to my door 
So it's this whole process that everyone's had to go through. And, and this quarantine in Beijing, this 14 days, it, they've started to extend it. There's an extra seven day period in some parts of China. It's 14 days in a government facility plus another 14 at home, depending where you are, because again, they're trying to battle the second wave. And this applies for both domestic travel and international travel. So if you if you fly to China now, you are at the airport removed and put in a quarantine hotel, right? Yep. Yeah. Right now the border's closed, so foreigners who have visas uh to China can't come in. So if you were coming back, you would have to be a Chinese national and they are also required to undergo this quarantine, so 14 days in a hotel at a different location. So a lot of routes have been routed not to Beijing but to other cities because there's just so much, there's such a volume of travelers really that they've been dealing with. So in order to deal with that kind of volume of travelers and in order to assign, you know, a minder to every single person under quarantine, who's going to monitor her alarm on the door, you've got to have a few things that are really effective before you can do that and pardon me, any uh, officials who may be listening, one is a really effective repressive state apparatus, but the other is a, is a testing capacity that is dramatic and consistent. And we have had in the United States, as you know, Sophia, consistent problems with testing capacity. China apparently does not, if they're testing everybody who wants to leave Wuhan, how available and ubiquitous and reliable are uh, is testing for COVID-19 in China, which of course has a population four times the size of that of the United States? Well, it's much more available now, the tests, um, than it was at the start of the outbreak. So where the U.S. is now, China faced this challenge too at the beginning of the outbreak. There were just so many people that needed to be tested. They couldn't possibly catch everyone. The hospitals were so overwhelmed. But now because they're trying, the authorities are trying to get the economy back on track and get people back to work and just get, you know, return to a more normal pace of life, this testing idea has come into place as a way to try to prevent anybody who might have fallen ill from traveling. And so it just makes it that much harder for you to get to another place, especially if you're leaving from Wuhan, for instance, like I had to experience but also the authorities here, I mean, they've mobilized this sort of Mao era grid policing. It's just what I was talking about, just to make sure that people are quarantining appropriately at home. And there is this infrastructure in place to bring goods to your door. I mean, it's really incredible. They come once a day to take my trash. You know, I really appreciate that because how else would I get rid of my trash? But some of it is also really big brother. I mean, they know exactly, like I say, what, you know, when I open that door. And there's also a slew of these digital tools that have been rolled out, these apps that track where you've been and whether you need to quarantine based on that sort of travel history, even your contact history. So if you've perhaps traveled near someone or been near someone who tested positive later, you might end up having to quarantine. So it's a lot of this tracing effort that the government has put in place, and it's pretty invasive. But it is what they think will contain the outbreak. And so far, it seems to have worked. But Again, I guess in a way, time will tell. So I want to get to the economic side in a minute. But before I do, you're in this quarantine because you went to Wuhan. Talk to us about how Wuhan's looking. Well, there's a 
a real eagerness for the people there to just start to move past all of what happened. I mean, there's a lot of grief and pain and suffering that they experience and in so many ways they just want to move on. I mean, spring has sprung, you know, the flowers are blooming, the air is better, the weather is warmer. And so a lot of people were outdoors trying to exercise. I mean, for the first time in more than 70 days, feeling the sun on their face, it was really something to observe. It was really remarkable. Um, but there's also a real sense of unease. There's a lot of concern over the numbers that were officially reported. And, you know, I mentioned before hospitals were so immediately overwhelmed. There were whistleblowers who were silenced. There was information that was suppressed. And in the last few months, there were many, many revisions in how China would count cases. And pretty recently, in Wuhan alone, the death tolls were revised up by exactly 50%. So there's this concern of whether or not we ever got the full picture at the peak, what China was really dealing with. A worker at a crematorium told me that there were 5,000 bodies a day waiting to be cremated. And that's a far cry from the two dozen a day before the pandemic hit. His shift started at 5.30 a.m. and ended after dark. And this is at just one of eight crematoriums in the city. Now, death tolls in so many other countries, including the U.S., have surpassed that of China. And you have to really wonder what impact did this kind of suppressed information from China have on what the U.S. and other nations understood and how they prepared their emergency response plans. You know, at the beginning of the year, when Wuhan was first locked down, China was so angry with foreign governments for evacuating citizens and closing borders and cutting flights. Beijing was lobbying the world, saying that they had everything under control. So at this point, you really have to wonder, did those actions exacerbate the outbreak? And if so, by how much? So there's a sense of kind of reckoning that people in Wuhan are, are thinking about and grappling with, but they're not fully reflecting on it just yet, because it, it really get the sense they just want to move on for now and just try to put some of this behind them. I want to talk about the numbers because, you know, we have this sense that the United States has surged past China in reported cases, in deaths, in, and, you know, that China has managed this thing after initial stumbles and initial lies rather effectively and the U.S. has stumbled. But that, of course, assumes that the decimal points are in the right place in the reported numbers. And we've had these consistent reports, including from you, that, you know, the crematorium numbers in these facilities are not just different from the reported figures, but wildly different. So if you're processing 5,000 bodies a day at one of eight facilities, you're talking about a amazing body count over time. And so I guess I, I'm interested in your gut perception of like how bad was it in China at the worst times? And is this perception that, you know, the U.S. handling of it has been unusually bad, is that just a, a, a misperception based on sort of gross misreporting of the numbers by China? I, it's hard to know what the true scale of the outbreak really was or is in China. I mean, it, we, we know for sure that they knew certain things like human to human transmission, for instance, far before authorities here publicize that. Um, and there are so many, so much evidence that's emerged about how many cases were not counted. I mean, lots of people who weren't tested in the beginning because of how overwhelmed the medical system was. I mean, they, were, they weren't counted because they never had a positive result, even though they died from 
what in so many cases doctors said, you know, hinted was the virus. So there's a large swath of cases that were never captured in the data and maybe never will be. I mean, I've, I've wondered really who would know here. I mean, do the numbers even exist? Do the numbers that show the full scale of the outbreak when it was at its worst, do they even exist in China? And they, they might at hospitals, you know, but that's not something obviously that China will want to make public. I was really intrigued when they did announce these revised death toll figures in Wuhan. You know, it was really interesting. I When I was in Wuhan, the government had arranged some propaganda tours for for media. And at one of them, we visited one of the temporary field hospitals, the Leishenshan Hospital. This was one of the ones that China constructed at the height of the outbreak in, in about a week. And this facility had thousands of patients at one point. And it was on that particular trip um, during a press briefing that one of the hospital officials admitted for the first time that there were cases that hadn't been captured because of a lack of testing. But they you know, quickly said that it was only a short period and that not many were impacted and therefore the numbers were pretty accurate. Uh, but you know, China doesn't have a great track record with transparency. They don't really have this history of always telling, telling the world everything. And so this case is yet another incident. And again, it just goes back to that issue. What did the world understand and how did everyone try to prepare? Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So when you uh, look at the current situation with this ongoing effort to tamp down a second wave, how do you understand what the prevalence of the virus is today in China? Is this, a, is this something that this could come roaring back at any moment, or are the measures that the Chinese government is taking of which you are subject right now, in your judgment, likely to prevent a significant new outbreak? The overall trend in the numbers of, of declining cases, I think that's pretty much true. I mean, whether we really are getting kind of zero numbers, zero deaths, you know, that might be up for questioning. You know, um, again, that's something that we don't know. We have to go by what China's reported. But if the overall trend weren't positive, they wouldn't have I think, started to relax these restrictions because it is pretty dangerous to get people moving again. But there was also a real pressure to get the economy going. But things, you know, if things were really truly 100% gone, we wouldn't have these restrictions anymore. So I take that as one way to observe what's going on. I mean, things have gotten better, but it's not all done with. And one big marker that a lot of experts have pointed to is that China normally holds these holds these annual parliamentary meetings in early March. And so that was postponed because of the virus. And still a new date has not been announced. A few things, a few mass gatherings like high school and, and college entrance exams have been rescheduled for July, but that's still a few months away. So maybe that gives us a better sense of where China thinks it'll be by the summer. But 
again, that's kind of a while from now and the borders still are closed. I mean, there's still so many restrictions on what people can and cannot do and temperature checks to go in and out of certain places like office buildings, grocery stores, basically everywhere. Uh, you're still subject to that. So again, if things were truly over, then these restrictions would also be lifted. And so I think we're in in this as the new normal for quite some time. I mean, it's going to be a while before the authorities are confident enough to let go of all of them. So let's talk about the new normal in China. How bad has the economic hit been? Oh, gosh. China just reported its first quarter GDP growth numbers down 6.8%. I mean, that's the worst ever period. And it's just, of course, it was always going to be bad. But wow, that's really a, a plunge for the world's second largest economy. And so one of the biggest challenges going forward is whether or not the Chinese government can successfully support a lot of these smaller companies. I mean, they're the ones that drive growth, not the big state-owned enterprises. They're they're sort of like a bit of a drain on the economy. And so smaller enterprises are the ones that drive the economy, drive job creation, and ultimately consumption, which is what China really needs that wants to boost its economy. So a, a contraction now is a, a real it was a really big disappointment for Beijing because 2020 was supposed to be a banner year for party leader Xi Jinping. He wanted to eradicate poverty by this year. He was going to double the economy in size from 2010 levels. I mean, this was supposed to be like this big success 2020, but already at the end of last year, that was looking to be a challenge. And then with the virus, of course, there's almost no chance that that's going to necessarily happen. So recovery is a pretty long way off. You know, a lot of these companies in tech, tourism, education. These are the smaller businesses. They've been closed for months. They don't have revenues. They can't pay salaries, even rent. And so just to stay afloat, they're starting to cut staff and wages, and that exacerbates unemployment. Millions are already out of work. Far more could lose their jobs this year. And the true scale of unemployment is actually probably much wider because of this vast migrant labor population, these people who work odd jobs, this gig economy. And so those positions, just getting those little sidekicks are going to be a lot harder this year because of how things have gone. And these people aren't legally contracted. So for years, they have not been paying into the state unemployment scheme. So that means there's no social safety net to catch them. So already we're seeing the social unrest crop up in Wuhan. There were protests over a few days at one of the biggest malls. Shopkeepers were demanding free rent for the year because again, they couldn't close and they had to close and couldn't take in customers. And even now with lockdowns lifting, nobody's going out to go shopping for non-essential items. Taxi drivers, for instance, are also conducting strikes or sit-ins, asking for fee reductions and what they pay car companies. I mean, this is something that the Chinese government is going to have to grapple with for probably most of the rest of this year. And is there any, I mean, when we think in the United States of like the lifting of in the United States, there were, of course, all state level restrictions, but the sort of opening up of the economy, the assumption is that things kind of go back to some kind of normal at that point. But in China, and I'm certainly no economist, I'm not sure that that's right, because you relax things and that means that, okay, so people can now go to work, but the lion's share of the Chinese economy is an export-driven manufacturing economy and the countries to which China exports huge volumes of material are themselves not consuming anything because they're locked down, right? So, you know, Europe 
is all locked down, not high consumer demand right now. The United States is locked down. And so as even to the extent the virus is more or less under control in China itself, the consumer economies on which it depends presumably aren't ordering anything, right? Yeah, this is the big question going forward. So in the beginning of the year, when China was suffering from the crisis, companies that needed parts from factories in China were having issues with their supply chain being disrupted. Now that's flipped. Now factories here are coming back online. They're starting to open their doors. They're testing their workers. Their workers are going back to their shifts. But the stuff that they're producing, it's not necessarily possible for it to be exported or for it to get to that next point in the supply chain. And so this is just sort of the second phase that is disrupting the world economy. The real impact of that, you know, this is this is something that I that a lot of experts had anticipated would happen. And then it's just a question of how quickly and how how quickly other nations can contain their outbreaks and begin to get back to normal. And that's something that China can't control. So you uh described the party and the government as kind of grappling with certain degrees of unrest. This is, of course, the party's biggest fear of all, right, is loss of loss of control, loss of prestige. And, you know, the party has a weird history over the last five months in this because they they lied and co- tried to cover it up. They're probably still lying and trying to cover it up to some degree. They famously harassed the whistleblower doctor. Uh, But then, you know, the rest of the world kind of got its comeuppance for their contempt, including, you know, in the United States in a big way. And China has developed a certain prestige, I think, internationally for having gotten things under control relatively quickly. And so I guess my question is, how is this playing internally? Is the day-to-day narrative that people have absorbed that the party had their backs at the end of the day and, you know, got it done? Or is the day-to-day narrative that there was a crisis, the party lied about it, and, you know, still hasn't gotten it done because there's a major economic catastrophe going on. There's a a pretty wide range of opinion here in terms of what people think. I mean, some people do think that the government really botched things to start. And when finally the government ramped up efforts, it was able to curb the outbreak. Um, Some people have bought the propaganda line, you know, entirely. Um, But there is a bit of unease, I would say, overall in what people know and believe. And part of that is because there's a real memory of SARS. I mean, that was 20 years ago, but it was devastating. A government cover-up then meant lots of people were impacted and died. So this is not in some ways new necessarily to the Chinese. You know, a lot of people have asked me, why was it that China was able to seemingly more successfully get people to quarantine at home? Part of it was because of how tight the restrictions are. I mean, the alarm on my door is the perfect example of that. But also, it's because people remember what the worst case scenario could look like, but they don't necessarily trust the information that's been given to them. And so it's a very confusing existence, I think, for a lot of people here, because they've been told to love the party and the party's got their back and they'll make all the right choices for the people. 
but from what the public has observed, that's not always the case. And so it's this continual grappling. I mean, one thing that has really worked in terms of the government propaganda line is this um, this anti-West line, you know, that they have combat the virus well enough to now support the world, that China is the, the savior and the leader in the uh, virus outbreak, an example for all to follow. Um, and one line that's part of that is that the U.S. military brought the virus to China. And that's something that I have been actually quite surprised to find that a lot of people believe, even even people in Wuhan who, you know, who come who live in the city of 11 million people where many, many scientists believe the virus emerged. So it's been interesting to see how that narrative has shifted. I mean, uh, in terms of how the government wants to play its hand. It's interesting that that's a line that the, you know, that the Chinese Communist Party would want to propagate, right? Because, of course, it suggests that the U.S. military had sufficiently, has sufficient access to launch a virus in China, you know, that would be a, a, a heck of a military operation. And of course, a uh, violation of the the Biological Weapons Convention and one of the world's great war crimes of all times were it true. And, you know, the Chinese government is not prepared to actually grapple with the consequences of that allegation having any merit. And so it's kind of interesting that they want to propagate that belief. Yeah, I mean, it goes with this whole anti-West narrative to stoke nationalism at home. I mean, to distract a bit, I mean, you know, from the whistleblower doctors, to the suppression of information, to a bit of anger and criticism over the early days of the outbreak, to deflect from all of that, the easiest line for the Chinese government to use, and this is definitely one they've used before, this is certainly an old playbook, is to be anti-West. You know, the West, it's, it's kind of like the sentiment of us against them. And this is a very physical manifestation of that idea that some other party hurt us, the Chinese, and they brought this in and now we're suffering. But hey, look at us, we've beat it, we've come around the corner and now we're helping everyone else. I mean, this is a, a narrative that plays really well to the Chinese. It goes well with Xi Jinping's China dream, you know, this idea that the renewed Chinese nation is a reborn player on the world stage. You know, it's something that they have been very keen to tout. Right. And meanwhile, in the United States, people are raising questions about whether it could have resulted from an accidental, not an intentional, release from these labs in Wuhan. I assume that matter is getting no discussion in China, or has it had any? It's had very little. Officially, China's obviously denied that particular line. The lab that's been pointed to that's in question is really close to the seafood market where experts think the virus may have jumped from animals to humans. And so there's a lot of circumstantial evidence around this particular virus lab, but nothing very concrete that stands it up. And it's very interesting to think about, but it's also one, it's it's one of many, many, many origin theories. I mean, some of these people I talked to in Wuhan have some very detailed ideas of where they think the virus came from. This one woman at another seafood mart told me that she had heard it came from a man who was selling wild ducks, a man in his 70s who had since died. There are a lot of different ideas. And somebody else said that the U.S. line was absolutely true because how else, why else would the U.S. be suffering so badly if they hadn't brought the virus? Who did? I mean, some of the logic doesn't necessarily make sense, but there are many, many 
theories floating about how this started and why it came. And I mean, everyone's trying to figure it out. Patient zero. I mean, scientists, I'm sure, would love to know exactly what happened from the studies that have been released. The virus, there are viruses that have been found in bats that are very similar to the one that's now infected humans. And so there's some thinking that it came from bats, maybe through some sort of intermediary host animal before it went on to humans. But none of that is fully determined just yet. You mentioned this seafood market at which the virus is believed to have first jumped species. Um, We hear a lot about what are called wet markets in China. What's the deal with that? What are they? And what do we know about the market in Wuhan where this supposedly happened? Well, wet markets in China are part of the fabric of daily life. It's sort of like the Western equivalent to a local farmer's market. The particular seafood market in Wuhan, where experts think this virus emerged, has been shut down. It's uh, wrapped in police tape and patrolled by police. So it's not going to be allowed to open for a very long time, perhaps if ever. There's a move to get some of those vendors set up in other markets. So just remember that this is a place where many people in China buy their groceries, leafy greens, cuts of pork. A lot of them also function as wholesale markets, supplying rice and spices meats uh, to local restaurants and to other uh, other grocery stores. And for the most part, these markets conduct legitimate business and they can be fun places to visit. But it's also where trade and wildlife can occur. And often these animals are raised on farms uh, and then brought into this market where they're sold and bartered. At the moment, China's temporarily banned the trade and consumption of exotic meats. And I went to a few markets in Wuhan and that's, that is the case. A lot of stalls that previously sold now banned meats are no longer selling them. Their signs have uh, been covered up. So they're no longer offering things like frog and turtle. Uh, And wildlife farms are also being forced to close down. But the big problem here is that the Chinese government still allows the trade and use of animal parts and traditional Chinese medicine. And these are alternative remedies that are meant to cure all sorts of ailments. And these use things from plant extracts like dried orange peel or honeysuckle to animal ingredients like bear bile and goat horn. And this is a part of Chinese culture that Beijing has been really keen to promote, including for use in the coronavirus to combat that particular disease. And so it's part of this broader soft power push around the world, especially along the Belt and Road. And so it's a conflicting situation. It's hard for China to fully ban the sale and use of wildlife because on the one hand, okay, they're saying that they want to get rid of the consumption and deal with the wet market issue. But on the other hand, they're allowing use for this traditional Chinese medicine industry, which is huge. And so it just gets harder for the government to regulate and to track what's really going on. And so going forward, it's a big question in terms of whether or not China can properly manage all of this. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Sophia Yan, thank you for uh, taking a few minutes out of your very busy isolation schedule to chat with us and bring us up to speed. Thanks for having me, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You should do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. Tweet about it. Share it on Facebook. Pin us on Pinterest. And of course, leave us a rating and a review at whatever podcatcher you found us on. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. It was recorded this week by Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. And of course, our music is performed by our guest, Sophia Yan.
And as always, thanks for listening.